How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Sarah Marsland? I bet you will have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Coletta Ram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Pline and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system, but we're still crazy for a good true crime story. I, I made aggressive over Skype eye contact. I was going to say, <laughs> I see you smiling because you're pleased with yourself. <laughs> yep. Very nice. Very, very well done, Diana. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Occasionally, I learn. People that don't listen regularly, but just sporadically, have no clue what's going on right now. <laughs> this will just encourage them to go listen to back episodes. There you go. Two episodes ago, ago guys. Mm, I can't talk. So, Diana, how are you? I am okay. Awesome. It's very. It is dark and stormy here. It is. It was thundering when I left work today. Oh, we I didn't get thunder. It. Now I'm jealous. Well, I mean... It, Perhaps was vehicles, but it sounded like thunder. <laughs> anyway, Crime Crazy is sponsored by... <gasps> God damn it, I need to write a note. <laughs> Crime Crazy is sponsored by Dave Hat and Seb Bryce. Woohoo! Sponsors support Crime Crazy through Patreon at the $10 per month level or above. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, guys. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us through Patreon or buy me a coffee, I, I mean, just go to those sites and search for it. You're smart people. You know what to do. Well, I mean, or go to our site, crimecrazy.com. And it's so right pretty. there on the main page. It is. And it's so pretty. The whole thing's so pretty. Then you should thank have a look you. around. You should. It's pretty fun. And you can look at all the ridiculous pictures of us, which is also pretty fun. We should have more ridiculous pictures taken. Okay. I'm on it. <laughs> Those are almost a year old. I know. I, I look exactly the same and might even wear the same outfit. I mean, same. <laughs> Aaron. Yes. I do not have any review shout outs this week. Ugh. Okay. Hey, guys. Mm. You should review us. You should. And do you know what happens when you review us? I do. But is you should good, tell everyone else. It's good karma. It is good karma. And there are stickers involved. Yes. 
So many stickers. So many stickers. So if you leave us a review somewhere, just send us an email. You can email us at Diana at Crime Crazy Pod or Aaron. Nope. Lies. Diana at CrimeCrazy.com and Aaron at CrimeCrazy.com. Yep. And we will send you stickers. I will even go to the post office if necessary. Oh, my God, guys. This is an insane, insane offer from Diana. It is. Diana hates the post office. So much. So much. So that's... So much. uh, You should probably just do it right now to see if we can make her go. And if anybody's listening from Stamps.com, we, you know... Hate the post office. (laughs) We'd talk. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, uh, you can follow Crime Crazy on all the social medias at Crime Crazy Pod or check out our website. I don't know if I've mentioned it, but it's really pretty. It's <laughs> crimecrazy.com. Yay! Awesome, awesome. Okay, now, did you learn anything? I still did. Okay, I'm ready. Aaron. Yes. Human feet yes. are stupid. Um, Okay. The human foot is made up of 26 bones because our primate ancestors climbed trees and they needed the, the, the flexible feet to grab branches. Right. Yeah, not but so much. We don't much live in trees anymore. So our big toe used to be opposable and it moved over to where it is now. Okay. And then for more shock absorption, that's why we developed the arch okay but because of all of the bones the foot is still really flexible and it can twist in and out and the arch collapses which leads to ankle sprains plantar fasciitis achilles tendonitis shin splints and broken ankles lovely why haven't our bones fused we're just not there yet um, no, maybe not. So one of the articles I was reading about stupid, stupid human feet was talked about <laughs> our ideal foot for how we move would be like the ostrich foot where they are more fused together and they only have the two toes. Yeah. But they made the point the ostrich foot has been evolving for, I don't Dinosaurs. remember if it was 250 million years or 350 million years, but it was a bunch. Yeah. And we only went upright 5 million years ago. Gotcha. So we are still very new to the walking game. Gotcha. That makes so much sense, though. It does, but I'm pretty mad about the whole thing. Well, yes. You of the many braces on the various body parts. Oh, my God. The... Sprained my ankle so much. I've broken my foot so much. Yes. <laughs> Human feet are stupid. Yes. Yep. Um, however, I wouldn't mind that first toe being opposable again. That would be handy. I already pick stuff up with my toes, but if it were too. opposable, that would be so much easier. Right? And yeah. maybe slight well, I guess maybe slightly longer would lead to a lot more breaks. So maybe not slightly longer. I don't know. It got me to wondering, though, because they were talking about, you know, archaeological evidence shows that people have been dealing with broken ankles forever because ankles are stupid, too. Yeah. Um, but I got to wondering, like, do other animals not break 
bones. that area of their body very often. And it seems like it's much less susceptible to breaking because, first of all, there's just way less yeah. bullshit going on. And it's more reinforced. And I don't know that there are really any other animals that have changed their method of locomotion so drastically. Right. Right. At least not in such a short amount of time. Right. Because I think about, like, I've had a bunch of cats over my life. None of them have ever broken Mm. an above-the-paw area, although they do way more running around than my fat ass does. So Tyler's kitten, we got him a kitten when we adopted him, and he named it Jacob Henry Italy Plime. Italy? Yes. (laughs) Um, He's quirky um no every every one of his names had like a story like and a reason it was very very meaningful anyway this cat Mm. was like the dumbest cat in the whole world (laughs) but very sweet um and when he was very little he jumped off of something and broke his paw and we took him to the vet and four hundred dollars later they said oh he needs surgery however (sighs) he doesn't appear to be in any pain anymore like you know, he had the initial break and he was uncomfortable, but then, like, he was fine. Um, yeah. And it he wouldn't necessarily not limp if we had surgery. So, like, do you want us to do it? <laughs> so, well, if he's not in pain and he's still going to limp, no. Right. So, then he limped for the rest of his life. Um, but he would limp more drastically if he saw you watching him. <laughs> And when he was not, when he didn't know he was being watched, like he'd be in the backyard and you were looking out a window or something, he would catch birds and shit. But then the moment he saw you, it was like this like horrible limp and he couldn't (laughs) walk. He's such a liar. But yes. I would dispute the notion that he wasn't that smart. (laughs) I mean, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, too, most animals spread out their weight on more than two points. Well, right. And that's the other thing is our feet are too small for what we're asking them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And our backs are all wrong. And like, we're just, it's amazing we survived. It's true. Well, and then our technology and our lifestyles advance so, so quickly, too, that we're not giving ourselves time to catch up to the tasks that we're going to do. Well, and they were even talking about like diet where Mm. I'm sure you've heard me say this, that uh, there's nothing wrong with me because my body is working the way it's intended to. I have proper nutrition. Mm -hmm. I come from a family that that has not historically been true. My body looks at food. It's like, we're going to squirrel this away because there's another potato famine coming. Right. And that's not so much an advantage anymore because I can't buy pants places. Right. (laughs) Yeah. My body's working the way it's supposed to based on the way my jeans are. Right. But we're not in that place. Right. Like if there's a potato famine. You'll just eat something else. I will. I'll be sad about it because I love potatoes, but Mm -hmm. I have more options now. Yeah. So, feet are stupid, bodies are dumb. What did you learn? I learned something about English. I think you're going to like it. First of all, I learned a new word. So, what I learned about English is um, it's one of those things that 
native English speakers know, but they don't know they know. And so this word is the same thing too. It's something I knew. I just didn't know what the word was. Okay. So two syllable heteronyms, which are words that have a noun meaning, meaning and a verb meaning. Oh, cool. Like insult. Right? Fuck. Okay. Nope, that's a one syllable word. Oh. Oh, it has to specifically be two syllables. Well, no, not to be a heteronym, but for this fact. Oh, okay. okay. So, so first I learned the word heteronym, which I did not mm. know. And that could, fuck, would count. Um, so would <laughs> shit. Most of them would count. Yeah. Um, however, two syllable heteronyms, there is a pattern of how you stress each syllable based on whether you're talking about the verb or the noun. So, when it is a noun, you stress the first syllable. Mm-hmm. And when it is a verb, you stress the second syllable. So if I want to present to you, mm-hmm. um, then you um, could receive the present of my presentation. Oh, and or if I, I were could, to insult you, then I, I, that would be an insult. Right. Oh. You can record a record. You can contract someone. No. You, someone can yeah. have a contract, but if you squeeze them, that's contracting. Right. And it's that one of those things that we just know how to do. Right. Yeah. But it's funny because I've noticed with people we know that are not native English speakers, when they don't do the stressing right, like mm-hmm. you notice it and then you move on. Right. Because you, you can, and I, you know, and maybe people who are less readers or like, I feel like if you had not seen the word, I feel like if somebody says like, um, I'm going to record this speech. Right. Instead of record the speech. My mind goes record and it shows me the word and then I'm like, oh, they meant record. Oh, record. Right. right. Exactly. But I wonder if people who are not like good, strong readers who would maybe not see the word when it is said, if they would have a harder time understanding. Maybe. Or on the other hand, um, I am sure you have run into this. <laughs> Being a strong reader Yes. But not necessarily always hearing words. Yes. There are definitely words that I did not know how to pronounce properly. <laughs> yes. For our boss's husband in mm-hmm. middle school, I think, maybe high school, it was crotchet. He was going to crotchet something with a hook and some yarn. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty common. That's like today when I was emailing you about that new hire. Mm-hmm. Or slacking about it. And I was like, so this is how you pronounce that name in case you need to be able to think about it in your head. I did. I, yep, absolutely need to be able to think about it in my head. Yep. So. That was handy too, because I did not know what to do with that name. Nope, me neither. This is my name and this is how you say it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so handy. Right? I appreciate that very much. Very much. So. So yeah, I thought that was amazing. And so the other thing that they talked about, um, was using like a string of adjectives. Oh, we always yeah. use them in a certain order, 
right? Mm-hmm. But no one teaches you that order. You just always hear it that way and your brain figures out the pattern. So even if you don't know, you know, you still know. Yep, you know. So I love Very stuff cool. like that. I do too. And it didn't have anything to do with cannibalism. Nope. I think we're clear. Yay. <laughs> so, Aaron. Yes. Do you have a story for me? I do. Yay. I came prepared. Woohoo. So, can I say last week on Crime Crazy? Yeah. Last week on Crime Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I did a story that had a cannibal in it. Mm-hmm. My cannibal, in addition to being a cannibal, like, was somebody that I feel like maybe somebody should have noticed that he was going to hurt people. I mean, I feel like lots of people noticed that. Yes. But with the jail sentence for murder and whatnot. Yes. He had a history of, you know, murder and whatnot. And then when they released him from prison after murdering somebody, he then went out and murdered somebody else. Like, Mm -hmm. we should have seen it coming. Right. Which is my theme for this week. Maybe we should have seen it coming. However, also cannibalism. I just didn't get enough cannibalism last week. And so... (laughs) (laughs) And guys, I've picked out my story for next week too. And while cannibalism is not the connecting thread, there's also cannibalism. (laughs) But then we'll do something else. Uh huh. Uh huh. Maybe. It's the more stressed I get, like about work and everything else going on, the more I'm like, how much blood is in this story? Okay, it's acceptable. You know what would make me feel better? Cannibalism. Cannibalism. (laughs) In which cannibalism is a stress reliever. (laughs) It's like when Jeff got real sick and I just listened to a lot of Jonestown. But it's such a good distraction and like puts all of my shit in perspective. Mm -hmm. Like... Yeah, I worked for 11 hours today and left a ton of things undone that I had wanted to have done, but no one ate any part of my body. Yeah. So things are cool. I'm going through the worst thing I'm ever going to go through in my life, but I am not in a South American jungle with a bunch of flavor aid in my hand. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. Um, okay. Gregory Hale. Do you recognize that name at all? I recognize lots of names. Mm. So you'll recognize at least one name in this story. But Mm -hmm. right now I'm going to tell you about Gregory Hale. All right. In 1977, he was born Gregory Scott Hale. There you go. Um, (laughs) We're going to come back to him in just a minute, but he's who the story is about. Okay. So we're going to skip back first and talk about another character named, uh, another human named Lisa Hyder. She was a 36, you're going to love this, 36-year-old mother of six. Oh, so many children. Oh, just wait. She lived in a suburb, sub, oh my God. (laughs) I am not even drunk. I'm just, all I've had is some iced tea. Um, Mm -hmm. 
she lived in a suburb of Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and she worked in a liquor store. Um, although some of the articles I read phrased it really strangely, which made me wonder if it wasn't like a grocery store that also sold liquor. But she definitely sold the liquor, which was sort of important. Um, She was recently divorced from her husband, Charles. They had been married for six years, during which time, six children. Whoa. So I don't know if any were multiples. And I don't know if any of them were born before they got married because another article I read did reference her having more than one ex-husband, but it was like a throwaway weird line in the middle of the article and then nobody said anything about it again. But even so, like that's a lot of marrying before 36 even. Yes. And the children, the six children, all seemed to be Charles's children. So it's not like she had children from a previous marriage and then remarried and then had more kids with this new guy. Like, they all appear to be his, from what I can tell. So, One way or the other, she was a very efficient lady. Yes. (laughs) And certainly exhausted, right? Oh, my God. Had to be. So... Charles had left her and taken all of the children, which is why I think they were all his. Um, Because of a couple of things, primarily that she had had an alcohol problem pretty much her entire life Mm. and was not making any effort to address it. Um, She also had some health problems, the most recent and serious of which was ovarian cancer, which she also was not addressing at all. Um, And it wasn't like, I'm super sick and I don't want to fight this. It was like, I'm going to drink a beer and then I won't have to think about it. And so he just couldn't keep him and the children in the house with her. And so he left her, but he always and always loved her and was always there for her whenever she was in trouble or had a need, he would rush in and take care of her on June 6th, around two 30, Lisa called because she was done with work and she needed a ride home. And she called her ex-husband And he said, well, I'm in another town. I'm like unloading a truck or something for work. And I can come get you, but I've got to drive back from where I am. It's going to be a little while. You'll just have to wait at work. And that didn't fly with Lisa so much. But luckily, a stranger that was in the store overheard this phone conversation and said, well, I can give you a ride home. So Charles Hyder, the ex, drove to his home. And like checked in with the kids and everything and then called Lisa to say, okay, I'm home now. I'm going to come get you. I'll bring you over to my house. You can hang out with the kids for a little bit. I'll take you home. Mm -hmm. But she didn't answer. And he spent the rest of the weekend calling and calling and calling because it was their routine for the children to talk to their mom on the phone. Yeah. So the youngest of their kids was one. Oh. Yeah. And they never got to speak to their mom. He could never get a hold of her. So the stranger who offered her a ride home was Gregory Scott Hale. Uh So Gregory Hale was born in 1977. At 37 years old, when the story takes place, he was living at home with his parents because he'd had a job loss and had to move back home. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a criminal history. However, we should have known that he was going to have one. So Hale had been fired 
from a slaughterhouse, which I just kind of feel like has to be a really extreme act. Yeah, I feel like the slaughterhouse can't be too picky. No, how could they? no? Also, what are you doing that's going to get you fired from a slaughterhouse? You're not stealing money because you are covered in animal guts all day. Right. You're not. I don't know, drinking on the job because that's no. Seems I fine. bet you are a hundred percent drinking on the job. You're not getting fired for that. <laughs> oh, that seems yeah. like a necessity. <laughs> At least. So what he had done to get himself fired was steal bones blood and eyeballs from the slaughterhouse and take them home and he was caught performing a satanic ritual at work that's fine oh Mm. no you can't bring religion into the workplace (laughs) right (laughs) that's not cool um is this under one of those like it's garbage but you can't have it rules probably and i imagine that it's also biohazardy stuff like even it's garbage but you can't have it being one thing but also like we are obligated to dispose of it in a certain way and They're so it's not cool pumping it in the damn river well yes but i'm sure that there's like a rule even if that's what they're actually doing yeah so i think That for context, I have to sort of remind everyone that this was happening in Tennessee because the rest (laughs) of this story really, really, and I'm not even going to go into all the detail that most of the articles went in about like his habits and all of that, but it really, really focuses on this. He was an evil devil worshiper who liked rock music and did weird shit and that's not okay kind of thing, which I think is probably cultural. Hmm. So that being said, um, so his neighbors and all the people who knew him, which all of the articles were very careful not to say and friends, because I suspect he didn't have any, knew him as a devil worshiper. They said he was weird. They said he was sick. They said, they, you know, he was not okay and he did horrible things and he worshiped Satan and all of that was just terrible. <laughs> I love your face. <laughs> Uh, satanic panic man very much so so we are in 2014 right now oh we should have been well past that shit we definitely should have been um but you know maybe less so in certain areas in tennessee Mm -hmm. yeah um and not tennessee but just the south of which tennessee tries to pretend it is (laughs) um I, i don't know to us northerners it is the South. Well, to most Tennesseans? Sure. Tennesseans? I don't know what they're called. Tennesseans? Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, nothing sounds quite right. But anyway, they, yeah. The more rural you go, especially, it's kind of like Virginia, where, like, there are some city-ish places there where everything is cool, but everywhere else is kind of the South. Yeah. Um, that being said, some of the very best times of my entire life took place in, in Tennessee. So, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, so on Facebook, he would post things like, I hug people I hate so I know how big to dig the hole in my backyard. Which I think is really clever. Um, 
and kind of funny. I don't know. Or you can just dig a standard body-sized hole. He also posted, and I'm going to give you this, the spelling with this so that you can really get a good feel for it. Oh, good. Would the, T-H-A, vegetarian taste like that fake soy meat they got in some, S-U-M, fast food places? Three question marks. No, you dumbass. They're meat. <laughs> he also posted selfies sometimes with weapons including this one sword that definitely well i don't know if it was a real bone but like the handle part was a bone like a a really big bone like probably a cow or something wait um, he's 37 yes this sometimes sounds like something a teenager would do very much so. Like all of this. Yes. Agreed. Um, so sometimes he was in a mask. He had this one mask that like had stringy things coming off of it. It was a little strange. And then um, also with snakes. A mask with snakes? Or no. S- snakes in the selfies. Yes. <laughs> selfies with snakes. His so, snakes or like snakes in the wild or snakes at the zoo? looked at the photo because you can see all of these like there are a ton of photos like on Murderpedia and just a Google image search of this guy um, and I could not tell if that one was photoshopped uh. honestly because it appears to be a rattlesnake it definitely has a rattle but the way that he's holding it and like the position the snake is in like it just looks so fake something about that photo is off hmm so anyway, according to his social media, he had a girlfriend and a son named after a Norse god, although I could not figure out which one, um, nor whether or not any of this was ever true. I'm going to mm-hmm. guess it wasn't. So then the other thing that he posted that we probably should have noticed, uh, he was really, really obsessed with one pretty famous person. And after this person died, he posted R.I.P. Night Stalker. Wish I could have met you. It turns out Richard Ramirez, <laughs> otherwise known as the Night Stalker, was Gregory Hale's hero. He would obsessively oh. read Ramirez's manifesto. He included him in blog and social media posts all about Ramirez. Also, again, I love the face. Very expressive. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, out of... All of the serial killers, like Ramirez and, oh, I can't think of the other guy's names. Richard Chase. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel bad for them. They were so mentally ill. Yes. And I think this guy must have been, too. Yeah. He had to have been, right? Normal people don't do this. Well, uh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, but to worship somebody who's just, I mean, I don't want to discount his crimes, but at the heart of it all is just a violently ill Mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Well, and I think that the part of Ramirez's thing that he was really into was the crime. I don't, I mean, he, it said that he obsessively read his manifesto, but then most of the things that he 
talked about were more like the nature of the crime and the blood and the gore and the, all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. Um, and so, I don't know. Th- this Hale was not a particularly brilliant human being. Mm. Shocking. Um, right. Which we're going to learn more about in a minute. <laughs> um, so, psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz who was very familiar with this case and helped with some of the the court stuff, um, believes that he also probably started stalking other women and fantasizing about his crime many, many times before he actually did it. Mm. And that other people would have noticed the strange, antisocial, scary, creepy behavior. Mm -hmm. And it should have been another red flag. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, on June 8th, he picked up Lisa But instead of following her directions to her ex's house to see her kids, he drove her to his parents' house where he was living. And at first, Lisa objected, but he assured her, it's just a quick stop. I just have to go by here and then I'll take you home. And and she didn't complain. She was getting a ride home. Um, Once he was there, he was like, hey, why don't you come in for a drink? Lisa has an alcohol problem Mm -hmm. and is going through a lot of shit in her life. And she was like, okay. So several drinks later... They had been sitting in front of his fire, talking about their lives and bonding, and they felt really close and probably a little drunk. And Hale suggested they go to bed, and Lisa was like, cool. So after they had sex, Lisa fell asleep, as you do. Mm -hmm. And the moment that she did, Hale took out his machete and sliced into her torso. Oh, shit. Yes. Lisa woke up because it wasn't like he didn't cut her head. You know, like he didn't kill her instantly. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was only awake for a minute or two because Hale continued to slash at her stomach again and again and again until she was dead. And the bed and the walls and the carpet were completely covered in her blood. Why the stomach? It Um, was the gore. Yeah, very much so. Because he was thrilled at this point like just super super excited this had happened and he was thinking of Ramirez and he was thinking of murder and he thought he had really done his hero proud and began to dismember her and as he was doing so he picked up pieces of her and he ate them and he even took photos of her body and of the pieces that he was eating with his phone But then he was there in the room with a body that he needed to take care of. And he wasn't really sure what to do. Um, can you hear Tyler? A little bit. Hey, Ty. Can you either close my door or talk more quietly, please? Thank you. We're recording. We can hear you. Or um, maybe both. Yes. <laughs> So, unsure of what exactly you do with a body, he cut off her hands and her head, and he put them in a plastic bucket. And then he cut off her feet and other pieces of her that had kind of, I guess, come apart during the whole thing, and he put them in another bucket. And then he took her torso, and he buried it in the burn pile at his house just temporarily. His plan was then to dig a big hole and bury all of the pieces of her in it. But that's a lot of work. Yeah. So he called his neighbor and asked if he could borrow his digger. I'm guessing it's like a bobcat or something the neighbor has to bury a body. Whoa, just came out and said it, huh? Just like that. And the neighbor was like, uh, 
and called the police. <laughs> well, that's good. Yes. Because I feel like some people are like, ha ha, buddy, sure. Right. So I'm not sure of exactly the timeline in there, but within two days he was arrested. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in that time period, either immediately and then it took a while to arrest him or maybe the neighbor waited a day to call or whatever. But um, they arrived and they looked around the yard and were easily able to find the buckets of body parts on the body that was buried in the fire pit. And so they went in and they talked to him. He confessed because like he'd been caught with a ton of blood and a bunch of body parts and was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I did that. And so they arrested him. Where were his parents? Because I have to believe that the blood soaked room smelled. Yes, I would think so. He was arrested within two days of the murder. I don't know if they were out of town I don't know how he would have hidden that. Plus, it sounded like when the police got there, the body parts and buckets were just out. They didn't, like, get a warrant and dig up the yard. Like, they just found those things and went and knocked on the door. Wow. So, he um, was charged with first-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. He had confessed. Uh he was sentenced in January of 2015 to life in prison with no chance of parole. And a psychiatrist that was really familiar with the case said it was a really good thing that he made the mistake of calling the neighbor to ask Mm -hmm. for help burying the body because all of the other indications, especially how pleased he was during his confession and like his comments about, you know, being aroused and thrilled by the blood, he was definitely on the path to becoming a really dangerous serial killer if only he had been a little smarter. Yeah. Wow. So I fully believe psychologically and like physically he was on the path to becoming a serial killer. Absolutely. But I don't think calling the neighbor was his only error in judgment. (laughs) So it would have taken a lot of luck and a lot more practice to get that down. Because, I mean, how long can you hide a room full of blood from other people living in the house or a body sitting in the backyard under a couple of like charred branches. Right. Which almost makes me think, I mean, again, that there's something else bigger going on in his brain because Mm -hmm. he was definitely like in his fantasies, he never got farther than that. Right. I, was mostly disturbed. So I think it was really, really clear that in his fantasies, in his reading, in his like, all of his plans ended with, and then I kill her and eat her. Right. And that was the end of it. And there was no planning after that. But it was super, super upsetting to me because he, I feel like sometimes people kill someone and they're like, oh my God, this was not what I had imagined. Right. And now there's a dead per. I've, I've killed someone. And there's some moment of panic. That was not the case for him. He was no. absolutely 100% thrilled with everything that he had done. It was just that he hadn't made a plan for getting rid of her. 
Right. I mean, the way you described it, I'm picturing him like in a room covered in blood, like frolicking. Pretty much. That was how, that was the tone of every article. Uh. Yeah. See, this is how I know I could never be a serial killer. I just, I don't like being dirty. I don't like my rooms to be that dirty. Well, I mean, I would have liked a different reason for why you weren't going to go out and kill innocent human beings, but I'll take it. Oh, I'm also lazy. Very bad upper body strength. Um, They're human beings? Oh, yeah, that too. Okay. Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> as I'm long not... as it's on the list of like the top ten. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not entirely inclined to murder anybody. But there's just there's so much else you have to take care of. Like it's it would be a it ton seems like of, a lot work. of work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really busy. Yeah, it definitely would be a ton of work. Well, and it's def- that seems to be the part that trips everybody up too. It's not necessarily the murder that generally goes pretty well. Well, and. and Exactly. And that, I, like I said, like that seems to be the end of the fantasy. Yes. You know, it's not, I don't think anybody's like, you know what I get to do now? Bury the body! Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get to the end and you're like, oh, that was amazing. Fuck. Yeah. Now I've got to deal with this. Right. Which does make sense. This is going to sound awful but like essentially the thrill the serial killer gets is the same as like a normal person would get from sex and that's kind of where the sex fantasy ends too it's never like and then we had to wash the sheets and take a shower (laughs) right it's not part of it (laughs) and oh man we gotta get up in the morning right (laughs) we should have started this earlier i'm gonna have to wash my hair and then i'm gonna have to dry it because otherwise i'll sleep on it wet yeah. That's a lot of information. <laughs> anyway. So, there's my killer, who was not a serial killer, but I feel like in some ways was a serial killer. I feel like, like he in his same, heart. Yeah, he had the same psychology. Oh, yeah. But... He just... Well, and they say that with a lot of serial killers, that the first kill is often by accident and then they're like, Oh, this is what I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His definitely wasn't, he knew exactly what he wanted Mm -hmm. and did a really good job planning all of it out until afterwards. Yeah. Like he chose a great victim. He, Mm -hmm. she was super easy to get to his house. He got everything that he wanted from her. She didn't put up a fight. He killed her. He, eight parts of her like all of that went exactly as as planned right but it was also like was there any word about whether or not he'd had his eye on her because that's awfully coincidental that he was there when she needed a ride so it did not sound like it because it sounded like one of the articles I was reading said basically he was on his way from like his house to somewhere else and he stopped in to buy beer and she was on the phone and she was like, well, I want to ride now. And then it was just, it just worked out for him. Huh. Um, but 
they were very convinced that he had had this fantasy and planned it. So probably there had been a lot of watching and thinking and planning and fantasizing and, yeah. you know, and then there was the perfect opportunity and he jumped on it cause he'd already thought the rest of it out. Yeah. Wow. Yep. He's a monster. Mm-hmm. Still alive? Uh, yeah, to my knowledge. He was only locked up in 2015. Um, sentenced to life, so not executed. Uh, yeah. I don't think he has died in prison. I didn't see anything about that. So I, this was one of the first articles I found where there were glaring discrepancies from article to article. Mm-hmm. So there were a bunch of articles early on that I read. And then there were some articles that kind of um, maybe around the time of his sentencing were written somewhere in there. And some of the details were just really contrary to, and it was not details about like, Oh, well maybe they've now learned X, Y, Mm -hmm. or Z, but like um, details about um, like where Lisa was when she was picked up and um I don't know. It was just, it was very strange. Yeah, that is weird. So. I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of myth. Maybe. A lot of hype. Yeah. So anyway, do you have a story for me? I do. I'm ready. All right. Last week on Crime Crazy. I talked about Nathaniel Jacob Knuckles, the guy who used a spare key to get into a condo and decided that he lived there now, even after the <laughs> homeowner showed up. <laughs> I live here now. No, this is my house. Yeah. Sorry. And the Bynum Pritchett family, who allegedly rented a house from a guy on Craigslist that definitely did not belong to him and then had to be forcibly evicted. That story still pisses me off. When I was editing it, it was pissing me off. <sighs> well, this should not piss you off. I'm ready. I'm glad. This week, I'm going to tell a story of someone who sold something, uh, in fact, a lot of some things, that didn't actually belong to him. Okay. Count Victor Lustig. Or at least, that's what he called himself. Ooh. Some guy whose name might have been Robert V. Miller, but might have been something else, was born in Austria-Hungary in 1890. He might have been born into the aristocracy, or he might have come from more humble but respectable middle-class beginnings, or he might have been born into the poorest of peasant people. So basically, he could have been anybody. Pretty much. Okay, because that's that pretty much like covers the range there. It does. Whether he was the mayor's son, which was one of his stories, or the son of a peasant, which was another one of his stories, he was an excellent student of people. Mm. Although he wasn't focused on his academic studies as much as his people studies, he did go to university in Paris. And while he was there, he became fluent in Czech, English, German, and Italian. He also learned that charm and poise were his greatest weapons. Yeah. 
He was also notable for one physical feature. At age 19, a man slashed Victor Lustig in the face for paying too much attention to that man's girlfriend. That left Victor with a permanent scar on the left side of his face that said it went from the corner of his eye down to his earlobe. Okay. He would eventually be referred to as the scarred by the detectives that hunted him. So whether it was for thrills or whether it was because he needed to survive, he started working in crime at a young age and he, he showed great promise as a criminal. He went from being a panhandler to a pickpocket to a burglar to a street hustler. But it was in Paris, a university, where he met his one true love. Gambling. Mm. According to Victor himself, he could make a deck of cards do everything but talk. After university, Victor took to the high seas for the excellent gambling opportunities. At that time, transatlantic cruises were loaded with rich people and with con men. Mm-hmm. Victor, with the help of professional gamblers on board, honed his gambling and his conning skills. But World War I put an end to those kinds of transatlantic cruises, so Victor decided that it was time to go to the land where the streets were paved with gold. America. <laughs> mm-hmm. He did pretty well in America. He started out swindling a bank. And when they caught up with him, he somehow persuaded them to pay him $1,000 for the inconvenience of being arrested. Wait, that's amazing. <laughs> it's how, so great. How does that work? Oh, he, like he, he went to the bank and he's like, I want to buy this property you want to get rid of, like a, an old farm that had been taken care of. And they were like, hot damn, let's do this. Okay. So he brought them a bunch of government bonds and said, I'm going to pay you for the land with these. And then um, I'm also going to give you an extra $10,000 because I actually need the cash. Like you can sell those, give me the cash to improve this farm that I'm buying. Okay. And it turns out they're all fake. Sure. Of course. He, He takes the cash. He goes on the lamb. They catch up with him. And on the train, like he was out east somewhere, on the train ride back to, I think it was Missouri, he just started talking up a storm about what a problem this was for him. And oh my goodness, he had nothing to do with it. And this was such an inconvenience and he's new to the country. And so by the time he got back, he had talked them into paying him the money for his trouble. I feel like that's one of the things where then the bank guy gets called into his boss's office and they're like, what the hell happened? And he's like, well, he, oh, shit. Right. (laughs) Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Then he came up with an early version of the Nigerian prince scam that resulted in $30,000. Nice. But his biggest success was with the Romanian money box. Okay. (laughs) He claimed that this device could make an exact duplicate of any denomination of money. But it took six hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the box was specially made either of mahogany or cedar, depending on which source. There was a lot of conflicting information about this guy, too. And it was about the size of a steamer trunk. 
Okay. It had two slots, one on either side. So you'd feed the money in one side and it would do Uh its thing. There was all sorts of gears and shit in the middle. Right. And then at the end of six hours, money would pop out the other end. Uh Uh-huh. So it it was all fake, obviously. Um, He'd ask the mark to put in a very specific denomination because it was the denomination that he'd already loaded into the machine. Sure. And it was real money, both of the things. So he'd have the guy feed it. He'd keep him company for the six hours. And then when the six hours are over, the money comes out. And he'd be like, okay, let's take it to the bank and see if the banker can tell the difference. And the banker could never tell the difference because it was real money. Right. That he'd like manipulated serial numbers on. Okay. So he'd preload the box with several pieces of real money in that exact denomination and once the mark was convinced that the machine was the real deal, he'd refuse to sell it. He'd be like, no, I'm not going to sell this. This is too valuable. I can't let you have it. And the mark would just keep offering more and more money. And when it finally got to be enough, he's like, all right, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess I can let you have this. And then he'd haul ass out of town before the guy figured out that it was just a trunk. Right. Right. Except not everybody figured that out. They talked about one guy who I think was like a sheriff who like just kept like it just kept putting out blank pieces of paper and he thought he was the problem and he just kept trying it again and like trying oh, it again. <laughs> um so uh, it's very um, clever it was very clever and the time delay like is yeah sad. on top of the romanian money box he was known to fake horse races races feign seizures during important business meetings and make bogus real estate investments. And this all made him a millionaire. At one point he married a nice Midwestern girl. He had a family, although he wasn't there much. He sent them a bunch of money. Like they could do whatever they wanted, but he was definitely fucking some other lady. Oh, I'm certain. But also like maybe just stop there. Just stop now. You're a millionaire with a family. No, no, no. By 1925, Victor was in his mid-30s, rich, had been arrested over 40 times, and was wanted by law enforcement all over the world. In May 1925, Victor and his buddy, Dapper Dan Collins, went back to Paris. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Victor saw an article in the newspaper about how the Eiffel Tower was in need of repair, but the cost of the repair job was very prohibitive. So remember that the Eiffel Tower was built for the 19, I'm sorry, the 1889 World's Fair. It was only supposed to be in place 20 or 25 years. At this point, it's been around for 30 years. It's falling apart. Everybody hates it. Nobody wants it. Right. So the the repairs were very expensive, and the author of the article made a comment about how it might just be better to rip it down, sell it for scrap metal. And sounds like an opportunity. Sure does. (laughs) So a new idea was born, but first there was some prep work. He worked with a counterfeiter to make him some government stationery, and then he gave himself the job of director general of the Ministère de Poste et Telegraph. The post office and the telegraphs. Mm -hmm. He then wrote letters to the five most prominent scrap iron dealers in Paris and asked them to meet him at the Hotel de Crillon, which is a stone palace on the Place de la Concorde. And I looked it up today to see if it's still around. It is. It's still a hotel. It is gorgeous. I bet. 
There, he convinced the men that the upkeep of the tower was too much for Paris. He made very impassioned speeches about what a beautiful architectural marvel it was and how valuable and all of these things. But Paris, she could not afford it. And uh, the French government just wanted to go ahead and sell it. But they figured this was going to cause a kerfluffle among the French people. So the whole thing needed to remain quiet until everything was figured out and everything was decided. Yes. So during this meeting, Victor was on the lookout for the person that would be most likely to fall for his scam. And he found it in André Poisson. André He arranged. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Poisson. Poisson is one of my favorite French words. <laughs> and fromage. <laughs> fromage. He arranged a private meeting with Poisson, where he insinuated that he was a public official who was not being paid enough by the government to entertain clients the way he was supposed to. Mm, that's right. Victor said that maybe a little bit of money would help ensure that the contract was awarded to Poisson. And Poisson, for his part, although he lacked in self-esteem, was not a dummy. And he figured, all government employees are corrupt, and a con man wouldn't be asking me for a bribe. So this seems fine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and paid the bribe. Well, that's some logic for you. Right. So the minute the money was received, Victor was on the train to Vienna. Yep. André Poisson, who was trying so hard to make a name for himself in Paris, finally figured out that he'd been had and decided to keep it quiet. He was just too embarrassed that he'd fallen for this to make it public. And that's exactly what Victor thought would happen. That's smart. Yeah. But he did keep an eye on the French papers just to make sure that uh, Poisson did not go to the police. And he did not. He never made it known that he'd been conned. So six months later, Victor went back to Paris and did the whole thing over again with five new scrap metal dealers. Oh, my gosh. That is bold. So bold. Uh, unfortunately, his potential mark on this round was smarter and went to the police. So Victor fled back to the United States. Mm-hmm. Once he was back in the U.S., he came up with new and exciting schemes. He conned Al Capone out of $55,000. <laughs> okay. He started a very successful counterfeiting ring with two men in Nebraska. They made the plates to engrave the fake money, and he organized the couriers to distribute the forgeries. They managed such a huge amount of counterfeit money that eventually the federal agents were on their trail. Uh Uh-oh. So this was the beginning of his downfall, but the angry, cheated-upon mistress was the accelerant. She called the feds, and on May 10th, 1935, Victor Lustig was arrested in New York and charged with counterfeiting. He threw his partners under the bus, fully admitted that they were counterfeiting, that he, you know, he knew all about it, but insisted that he had nothing to do with any of it. Of course. However, he was in possession of a key that opened a locker in Times Square that had $51,000 of counterfeit bills and the plates from which they were printed. Yeah, that's a little damning. Yeah, the jig was up. He went to jail. He escaped. He went back to jail. He pleaded guilty at his trial, and he was sentenced to 15 years for counterfeiting and an additional five for the escape to be served at Alcatraz. Mm. He died in prison. Uh, I don't think at Alcatraz, though. I think he got uh, moved to the Midwest 
on March 9th, 1947, of pneumonia. Mm. On top of all of this, and I did not even scrape the surface of all of the crime that this man committed in the 40-odd years that he was on the outside. On top of all of this, Victor Lustig, or whatever his real name is, because we don't really know. He had over 40 aliases. He was wanted in multiple countries. He'd been arrested and put in jail and escaped more times than anybody knows. This guy was fucking Teflon. But on top of all of this, he is considered to have written the Ten Commandments for con men, which are as follows. I am so excited. Be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets a con man his coup. Yes. Never look bored. Hmm. Wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Mm -hmm. Let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same ones. Mm -hmm. Hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Okay. Never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Okay. Never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you all eventually. Never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Never be untidy. Never get drunk. I kind of like him. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. (laughs) He's so smart. He was smart. He was clever. Everybody who knew him in a social setting seemed to like him very much. He was very unassuming. Um, He was not a large guy. They talked about he was like 5'7", you know, not very large. But just people knew he was important. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, like, those are very sensible rules. Mm -hmm. Most of them are the same rule. So I don't think it counts as 10. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. They're really not. Well, there's the religion one, the politics one, the, you know, like they're all, it's the right. same idea. Like, listen, imply, agree. Right. It's very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, it's a historical story, so nobody is still hurting, and um, there was no murder, and that just made me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounded like one of the articles I read, and again, there's so much conflicting information, and there's different sources, and apparently there were a lot of pulp novels written at the time where some of this stuff is gleaned, and who knows how accurate any of that is. Sure. But one of the things he said is even early in his life when he was saying that he stole to survive he only took from people that could afford it right he's like the noble thief well right um you know even the crimes we're looking at here like these were successful scrap metal dealers right it was al capone yeah and banks and you know and not enough to make a run on the bank although that's uh part of what Part of what he convinced that one bank was that if word gets out that this swindle happened and that you assholes fell for this, right? There's going to be a run on your bank, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's going to hurt um, you as much as it hurts me. Absolutely. Um, but 
you know, again, it wasn't like the amount that he took wasn't enough to cause the bank problems. It would have been the run on the bank that would have caused the problems. Right. No, I so, mean, yeah. it's super smart. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. I like it. Yeah. So that's what I know. Sounds great. Do you have any advice? I do. I'm ready. I say this understanding that I've just talked into a microphone for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think that Lustig's first rule, be a patient listener. I think we should all take a little bit more time to be patient listeners. I think that's a good rule just for humanity in general. I think so. Although- Even if you're not intending to do nefarious things. <laughs> Right. No, like, I think we should just all listen to each other more. And I'm going to go ahead and say that rule number 10 on his list is horseshit, and I'm not following it. Which was that one? Never get drunk. Uh, agreed. Although never be untidy, I can get behind. <laughs> I mean, that's always my intention. Yeah, it's my intention. It does not always work out, but I not, like it a lot. Not so much. I love it. Call your people. Call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode.